0: Gathered in love and service for justice and peace. There's an inside joke among ministers that for a religious movements so profoundly committed to social change, we Unitarian Universalists resist change just as much as everyone else. Some of us love the idea of change as long as we're the ones who don't have to make it, or change is okay as long as it's. Over there, and not in here. And some of us have left scratch marks on anything we've ever had to let go. Sometime around 2500 years ago, in what is now Nepal, Prince Siddhartha Gautama was born to the king and queen of the Shakya clan. The story has it that until the age of 29, he never met an aging person, never saw anyone who was ill or in distress. Even the palace gardens were kept entirely free of withered flowers, let alone dead leaves. And he was entirely shielded from any experience of death. Imagine life with no change, no suffering, no death. Who knows what propelled him over the palace wall one night, but once on the road, He encountered an elderly person, a sick person, and a funeral procession. It was the shock of this experience that set him on his journey seeking spiritual awakening. He was the Buddha. Author Amy Bloom writes, for a lot of us, change is stuff you have to pretend to embrace even as your heart sinks you know it's going to end badly, and you already feel the loss. Another awful thing about change is that we want it as much as we fear it, and we need it as much as we need safety. But change is as inevitable as rain in the spring. Some of us just put on our raincoats and splash forward. Some of us choose to stay home. A few admirable nuts shed their clothes and cavort in the yard. And some people go out and get deeply, resentfully, and miserably wet. No matter what, the rain falls. The truth, the immutable truth, is that it is the nature of everything to change. And everything changes. And it would probably be so much easier to be human, in a human body, if we could grok that we really don't have a choice about it. My friend and teacher, author Sylvia Borstein, writes, we can struggle or we can surrender. Surrender is a frightening word for some people because it might be interpreted as passivity or timidity. Surrender means wisely accommodating ourselves to what is beyond our control. Getting sick, getting old, dying. Losing what is dear to us is beyond our control. Wisely accommodating ourselves to what is beyond our control. How does wise accommodation look? Three years ago, Alan Deutschman wrote a terrific book called Change or Die. For some of us, the title was enough. (laughs) Alan Deutschman researched what it is that makes people and corporations able to change, especially after they've tried and failed in the past. He concluded there was a single key ingredient in successful change. Here is the secret. The single key ingredient in successful change is a relationship with a person or group who inspires us, believes in us, and leads the way. Not surprisingly, Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step recovery programs are based on accessing the experience, strength, and hope of people who have come back from the depths of hell and lived to tell that improbable story and share the miracle. Nonetheless, recidivism remains a demonic force. It doesn't seem to matter how high the stakes are. More often than not, for the change or die group, change is fatally elusive. Dr. Ray Levy, founder of the Global Medical Forum, says 80% of the healthcare budget is consumed by five behavioral issues. He doesn't even bother to name them. We all know what they are. Smoking, drinking to excess, eating too much, too much stress, and not enough exercise. Among heart bypass patients, 9 out of 10 fail to make the changes that would save their lives. Except, except for the ones Dr. Dean Ornish gets a hold of. You know about this, Dr. Dean Ornish puts his patients on an extremely low-fat vegetarian diet, gets them doing yoga and aerobic exercise and meditating, and nearly eight in 10 of his carnivorous type A businessmen just do it. They make the changes and maintain them year after year. Why? Alan Deutschman's research shows three things. First, new skills are necessary. Dean Ornish's staff teaches classes in nutrition and exercise physiology and his patients study as if their lives depend on it, because they do. Second, it's all about the support groups where patients practice making their new choices in a team environment, they see that their peers are eating broccoli. Their peers are chanting om. Their peers have thrown themselves to the side of life and in the process lost weight, lowered their cholesterol, and achieved a 91% decrease in chest pains in the first month. They experience those around them as having been given another chance at life, and so choose it for themselves. And third, it's all about reframing their lives, getting it, about the benefits of life in a body and shifting priorities. Alan Deutschman calls these three steps relating, repeating, and reframing. Relating, forming new relationships. Repeating, learning, and practicing new ways of being, and reframing, thinking in new ways. Change, change, change. Dean Ornis saw that trying to motivate heart patients with a fear of death wasn't working. At first, they were frightened enough to do whatever the doctor said, but then their denial would creep back in and they'd backslide. He saw that they lived the way they did as a strategy to cope with emotional pain. Telling people who are lonely and depressed that they're going to live longer if they change their lifestyle is not that motivating, he says. Who wants to live longer when you're lonely and depressed? He reframed fear of dying with a new vision, joy of living. Joy, he concluded, is a much more powerful motivator than fear. Maggie Brooke grew up on an Indian reservation where nearly everyone older than 12 drank to drunkenness. She says, 20 years ago, a woman named Lois lived in a neighboring band within our tribe. Once a week, I went the few miles to her community and babysat her little ones. But after about two weeks, I started to wonder, what could Lois possibly be doing every Tuesday night? There's not much to do around here in these villages. So one evening after Lois left to go to the meeting lodge, I packed up the children and went over to find out. We looked through a window in the lodge and saw a big circle of chairs all neatly in place, with Lois sitting in a chair all by herself. The chairs in the circle were empty was really curious, you know, so when Lois came home that evening, I said to her, Lois, what are you doing every Tuesday night? And she said, I thought I told you weeks ago, I've been holding AA meetings. So I asked her, what do you mean you're holding AA meetings? I went over there tonight with the children and looked through the window. We watched you sitting in that circle of chairs all alone. Lois got quiet. I wasn't alone, she said. I was there with the spirits and the ancestors, and one day our people will come. Every week, Maggie Brooke continues, Lois set up those chairs neatly in a circle and for two hours she just sat there. No one came to those meetings for a long time. And even after three years there were only a few people in the room. But 10 years later, the room was filled with people. The community began turning around. People began to rid themselves of alcohol. I felt so inspired by Lois that I couldn't sit still watching us poison ourselves. One evening, Maggie Brooke took a seat in that circle, and everything changed. Thanks to Lois, a future not only for herself, but for her people, a future became possible. A team helps and a team of spirits and ancestors is stronger than death. But change can start just like this, with one person with a vision who holds out a hand. I thought of this again when I read a little bit about ex-con and social activist Heather Weigand. Heather was a 36-year-old prostitute with a 20-year drug habit when she was arrested for the fourth time in 1999. Facing a four-year prison sentence, she agreed to enter CHOICES, a program for inmates who want to get clean and sober. A counselor named Sydney Rays came to me when I was arrested, she says, and I'm sure I was an absolute mess. I remember how good she smelled. And she had these crystal blue eyes. She said, do you need some help? I broke down and admitted I needed a lot of help. I got into the program and I stayed right up under her. I wanted to know how she lives and breathes. She shared her story with me and I thought, wow, she was even worse than I was. She worked with me every day. I would hear her voice in my head. She said that we are fighting for our lives and we can't break even the smallest rule. I remember the moment she gave me a hug and whispered, you are such a good person. That was the moment I believed I really was a good person and I could do good things with my life. From that moment on, I never looked back. Heather Wygand was released into a recovery house, eventually becoming a residential counselor. And then a clinical coordinator supervising eight clinicians. She earned a degree in criminal justice and won a number of awards, including the one for the graduate with the highest academic and civic achievement. But you can forget, you can bet that she doesn't forget how she got there. When a broken person wants to stay right up under her and find out how she lives and breathes, Heather Wiegand opens. My spiritual companions, we can struggle or we can wisely accommodate ourselves to that which is beyond our control. The single key ingredient in successful change is a relationship with a person or group who inspires us, believes in us, and leads the way. Then we can stay right up under them, and we become like that person, be part of that group. So held, we can relate, repeat, and reframe until the change is ours, and we are the changer and the changed. Look no further. We are here together to help one another and to heal the world. Let us build this road together as we walk on it. Amen.